Hello and welcome to the second annual GradX Ideas in Action. We are thrilled to have you here with us tonight. My name is Kristen Finch. I'm a PhD candidate in botany and plant pathology, and I'm also the senior host of KBVR's radio talk show and podcast, Inspiration Dissemination. I'll be your MC for this evening. GradX is co-sponsored by the Graduate School and the radio talk show, Inspiration Dissemination. And it's been in the works since October when we selected the speakers. For the last four months, the speakers have been guiding or working on their stories, building their stories for you with the help of inspiration dissemination hosts. And behind the scenes, some folks at the graduate school were organizing the event and making sure that it's perfect in this amazing space. Wow, how their work has paid off. So the students that we're featuring here tonight are from across academic departments and academic colleges. They're from all over the country as well as abroad, but they have this one thing in common. They move around their day as students, mentors, instructors, researchers, friends, and community members. But tonight they share their story with you. All right, we begin the evening with Zoe Alley. She's a PhD candidate in psychology. Zoe's advisor is Dr. David Kerr. Please join in welcoming Zoe to the stage. Imagine you're in an airport and you have to leave your luggage behind for a moment. You'd probably feel a lot more comfortable doing so if there was someone you could trust watching over it for you. So before we get started, I would like for all of you to take a look around the room and identify someone that you've never met before who you'd feel comfortable asking to watch your things while you step away. I'll give you a moment to do that. Who would you trust? Who we trust seems to be a profoundly subjective judgment, right? And to some extent, it is. However, we in the School of Psychological Science like to take a step back from the seemingly subjective and see if we can find a science behind it. When I graduated from OSU with a bachelor's degree in psychology, I knew I wanted to understand the science behind why people think and behave the way they do so we could apply that knowledge to make our lives easier. And to do so, I figured I needed a graduate degree in psychology. Like a miracle, here at OSU, a doctoral program opened the year I started applying for graduate school. It was like they'd made it just for me. I was one of the first three students to be accepted into this program, a cohort of three grad students. It was pretty interesting. I got a master's degree in applied health psychology, and I'm continuing for my PhD now. And I have been studying the science behind who we trust. So let's go back to, oh, let's go forward to that same example again, where you're in an airport and you have to choose someone to trust. I'd like a show of hands here. How many of you would feel more comfortable leaving your luggage behind with this one? Okay, that's a profound majority, and that is not an accident. People around the world, from many different cultures, from all different ethnicities, and even all ages, tend to hone in on the same facial characteristics when we're deciding who we want to trust. So let's spend a moment trying to dissect that. What are the facial characteristics that lend themselves to being trusted? The two images I'm showing you here are computer-generated images that highlight those distinctions. So if you look at the trustworthy face over here, you'll notice that the lips are curved upward and the brows are raised, almost like a smile. 
If you look at the untrustworthy face, you'll notice that it's almost appearing like a grimace. So the lips are downturned and the brows are lowered. Humans are biologically programmed to approach people who are smiling and therefore likely to be friendly and to avoid people who are looking angry because they might be a threat. By and large, this tendency serves us well. However, we can overgeneralize it to inappropriate contexts. If I am a person who has lips that just naturally happen to be turned downward, you might respond to me as if I'm angry or aggressive without even really being aware of it. So why might this matter? Among men who were convicted of murder, those who looked more like that guy were more likely to receive the death sentence. And this was true even among those who were exonerated. So let me rephrase that. Innocent men who looked untrustworthy were more likely to receive the death sentence. It appears that in some cases, facial trustworthiness can literally be a matter of life and death. When I heard about this study, I began to ask myself, if facial trustworthiness is so important in a courtroom context, how might it influence the development of an adolescent? In our teenage years, we make our formative friendships, meet our first mentors, and begin to decide who we really want to be. Could people who look untrustworthy be a disadvantaged during this time period? Is what we look like actually related to the things that we do at all? Are people who appear untrustworthy really untrustworthy? And do we have any control over how trustworthy we appear? Can this change over time? I was lucky enough to have access to a data set that would allow me to answer these questions. Back in the 1980s, approximately 200 boys were recruited from high-crime neighborhoods in Oregon. These boys were assessed every year for their untrustworthy type behaviors. For example, do you ever get into a fight this year? Have you withheld change from a store clerk? Have you stolen things? Etc. Importantly, they also had pictures. So here I have information about their untrustworthy type behaviors and photographs that could be rated for facial trustworthiness. That's great, right? Well, this study began, as I said, in the 1980s, so most of these pictures were Polaroids. They were also highly sensitive data, so they couldn't leave the facility in which they were taken. We have to protect the privacy of those who participated in the study. So to get those facial trustworthiness ratings, every week, for an entire summer, I had to drive an hour to this top-secret facility and start scanning in Polaroids. It was a Long involved work, but when it was finally done, I had those ratings and I could take a peek and see if what we do is actually related to the things that we look, the way we look. It turns out that it was. So the boys who engaged in more untrustworthy behaviors while they were teenagers looked less trustworthy when they were adults. The next question is, why? Why might the face be related to behavior? There are a myriad of possible explanations but I'll share with you the two that are most relevant today. The first is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I look untrustworthy, I might have a harder time making friends. People may be less likely to spend time with me or to give me the opportunity to prove that I'm a trustworthy person. A lifetime of being treated this way by social partners around you might make you become exactly what they expect you to be. An alternative explanation is referred to as the Dorian Gray effect, so named for the titular protagonist of Oscar Wilde's famous novel, 
whose hideous deeds manifested in a horrible appearance. The idea here is that our behavior might actually change our face over time. Okay, so if I am an angry person, and I always make angry facial expressions, this might change the wrinkling and musculature of my face, such that when I'm making no facial expression at all, I look angry, or at least a little bit more like this guy over here. To figure out which of these possible explanations was most relevant to explain the finding I had found before, what I needed were pictures from an earlier time point, before these boys had engaged in all of those untrustworthy type behaviors I described before. Those pictures were available, it just meant I had to scan in a couple hundred more Polaroids. Once I had those ratings, I took a look. What these boys looked like when they were about 14 did not predict what they would do later. Okay, so facial trustworthiness did not predict future behavior at that age. However, the behavior that they engaged in across adolescence predicted change in facial trustworthiness across time. This appears to be evidence for the Dorian Gray effect I explained earlier, but it's not the full story. Among adolescents, the same kids who are stealing cars and doing graffiti also tend to be using substances like alcohol and tobacco because untrustworthy type behaviors and substance use are so closely related to one another, we decided to take a look and see if there might be an effect of substance use on facial trustworthiness. For tobacco use, there was. Okay, so using more tobacco across adolescence led to a less trustworthy facial appearance later. And this effect was so strong that it washed out the influence of untrustworthy behavior. It appears to be the case that the reason untrustworthy behavior was associated with an untrustworthy face later was just because it itself was related to tobacco use. This is concerning for several reasons. Substance use is an imperfect predictor of untrustworthy behavior. It's not inherently, in and of itself, untrustworthy. I know plenty of people who use tobacco that are perfectly wonderful, trustworthy individuals. I think about my grandmother, one of the sweetest women in the world, right? and she smoked all of her life. However, these people may be unfairly treated because of the effects this substance might have on their faces across time. This is particularly concerning because in a healthcare context, evidence indicates nurses are less likely to prioritize the care of those who happen to appear untrustworthy. This is also interesting because people who use tobacco might be in particular need of such medical care given the fact that tobacco use has many health consequences, as I'm sure you're well aware. So what can you take away from this talk, besides reason number 101 to quit smoking? Well, the first thing I'd like you to do is just to be a little bit more conscientious about your reactions to others. This is especially relevant for teachers. If the student says, I turned in the assignment late because my grandmother was sick, are you going to trust them? If you have a knee-jerk reaction not to, Maybe you should ask yourself, how much of my reaction here might be influenced by their face? And how fair is that? If you're concerned that you might have an untrustworthy face, or you just want a tip to make yourself a little bit warmer and more welcoming to the people around you, I have a bit of advice for you there, too. Let me tell you about a variable I had to measure in every single one of the faces that I looked at and control for in every single one of the analyses that I just shared with you. Smiling. 
I had to measure the extent of smiling for each of the participants in the study at each photograph on a scale from smirk to grin. Because when you smile, your facial trustworthiness skyrockets, or at least your perceived trustworthiness. So, as you go about the world asking people to trust you, my advice is this, smile. Thank you. Thank you, Zoe. Our next speaker is Minerva Zayas from the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. Her advisor is Dr. Susan Shaw. Please help me welcome Minerva to the stage. Tortuga. My heart falls on top of a tortuga. Una tortuga que busca casa. A turtle that looks for home. My colonized mind has left me asking questions. When will we crawl out of it and live without intolerance? Individuality lets me speak for silence and mourn for an invisible existence. La tristeza de mi madre, my mother's sadness, as it vocalizes over thousands of miles. Lost souls, stolen homes, claim lives. Flutter as my ancestors turn in their graves. Porque mi raza, cultura, y la jotería nunca será igual. Sundays became the days that I would, in retrospect, dread. It consisted of attending mass on, at noon on Sundays, confirmation classes from 5 to 6 on Saturdays, and a large magenta dress. I felt like a teenage queen. Growing up Catholic was what was expected of me and meant a lot of church attendance. However, as I got older, it all led to one thing, a quinceañera. My family and I decided that this formal religious ceremony of coming of age would result into me coming into the age of 15 and into womanhood. This was the perfect excuse for a huge party and a full court of my family and friends with lots of good food and music. Spreading my wings and going to college always felt like a far-fetched goal, one that would come with much perseverance, personal growth, and transformation. I graduated high school, stopped going to church, majored in psychology, and minored in, minored in Spanish. Eastern Washington University became my home away from home. Nonetheless, something still felt missing. I was away from what I had learned and all that I have been taught to learn. One thing is true. As a Mexican, you are taught to work hard. I worked every summer endlessly at Apple and Cherry warehouses and worked up to 60 hours or more a week. I was a housekeeper and even gained patience as I chased at-risk youth down the facility in Spokane, Washington. Nonetheless, something still felt missing. My love for learning bloomed when I revisited women and gender studies and took a woman in the cinema course with Professor Jessica Willis. Jessica would later become my mentor and somebody that I would look up to in my academic life. I ultimately made the decision that would change my life, my family dynamics, and would heal the intergenerational trauma for future generations. 
I declared my second major in women and gender studies and learned the importance of the personal is political. The personal is political is a concept that is set in the ways that our personal endeavors are just as important and align with us and how they identify with us politically. Sure enough, I had an epiphany of challenge and challenging in thought, an inner battle of acknowledging my religious values and the pride of being a Mexicana, because these pieces are still a part of who I am. This new journey felt intriguing and absolutely terrifying. I made new friends in my feminist classrooms and spent hours in seminar classes talking about feminist ethics, politics, and identity. My new community allowed me to find my voice, speak up from many layers of oppression, oppression, burden, of, and burden of being the daughter of an immigrant family. I discovered and pushed against my limits and identified and accepting myself as a queer Chicana woman. In 2015, I joined and became a part of the Ronald D. Scholars Program. Dr. Christina Torres Garcia, the director, sought my potential and love for learning and guided me. The McNair Program is a federally funded program for first-generation, low-income graduate students, or undergraduate students, and their interest in attending grad school. I would later find out what an amazing journey I was on, one of self-discovery. McNair not only provided me with a paid summer internship to do original research, but it was a rigorous research-intensive program that would prepare and would pay to fund 10 applications for graduate school and was also a requirement. The inner battle of discovering who I am today bled into my research. I felt deeply connected with the negotiation of multiplicity of identifying within the LGBTQ plus community and being raised with, by an indigenous Mexican mother and the values of a Catholic woman. This realization led towards being highlighted as a featured scholar for the Eastern Washington University Creative Symposium. Beyond labels and boundaries, Queer Chicana Woman and the Psychological Identity Development was the title of this project. For this project, I interviewed Queer Chicana Woman and their experiences in college in public and private spheres. This photo is a photo that was showcased at the EWU Creative Works Symposium, where the theme was diversity, and the first time that Eastern Washington had a representation of LGBT studies and women of color. Finding my personal voice to speak up and have conversations about bridging my understanding as being the first person in my family to go to college, come out as queer and Chicana, and explore feminisms that have now led towards my drive to highlight the experiences of LGBTQ plus Latinx students towards showcasing their experiences. My amazing support system had believed in me and assured, it, assured me of, who, of the woman I am today. Out of five offers to grad school, I accepted my offer to Oregon State University. OSU has given me the tools to explore a new way from speaking from within, through poetry and creative expression. I dived into exploring learning and transformation and the critical transformation from within and placing my scholarship from theory into practice. I joined an amazing group of women, the Women of Color Caucus, meeting the co-founders and the leaders 
I realized that we shared the same vision in having a network of support and bridging women of color into graduate school. My newest community involvement consists of being an advocate for the Center of Rape and Domestic Violence to support survivors. The Women of Color Caucus mission statement. The Women of Color Caucus aims to celebrate, empower, and advocate for women of color at Oregon State University by focusing on the professional development of women of color in all disciplines to enable them to become successful contributors to their field. This mission will be accomplished by providing support, community, and resources for women of color at OSU, while enriching OSU with the contributions of often silenced people. WOCC seeks to center issues, knowledge, and experiences of women of color and provide a safe space to build meaningful connections and support the advancement of women of color. WOCC has an open membership policy and invites people of all backgrounds who encourage and support the advancement of women of color in higher education to become members and help in our work towards an inclusive community. The Women of Color Caucus Leicester's creating safe spaces for women and for allies to come together, share our stories, and the challenges of being a minority in academia. Stepping completely out of my comfort zone to highlight and organize the experiences of other queer Latinx students lies deeply within myself and would have been a total shocker for the girl wearing a pink magenta dress. This is me, a researcher, an ally, a spiritual person, a queer Latinx student leader, a daughter, a sister, a chingona. And lastly, I would like to share one of my favorite authors with you and her quote that resonates deeply with me. As Gloria Anzaldúa say, says in her book, Borderlands, La Frontera, a lesbian Chicana woman states, to separate from my culture as from my family, I had to feel competent enough on the outside and secure enough on the inside to live life on my own. Yet, in leaving home, I did not lose touch with my origins because lo mexicano is in my system. I am like a turtle. Wherever I go, I carry home on my back. Thank you. Our next speaker is Antonio Gomez from Integrative Biology. Antonio is advised by Dr. David Madison, where he is a PhD candidate. Please help me welcome Antonio to the stage. Welcome, everybody. I'm Antonio, and I study beetle sperm. And <laughs> I have actually a, a lot of thanks to give to this person here. This is Antoine von Leeuwenhoek the inventor and discoverer of the microscope. And when the microscope was invented, we all of a sudden had a, an, a view into a world that we were surrounded by this entire time, but we never knew existed. And classic dude, what is one of the first thing Leeuwenhoek does when he gets his microscope? He looks at his sperm. <laughs> <laughs> now, sperm were a huge deal. We wanted to know how do we make more of ourselves and there were some ideas floating around as to how we do this. <laughs> and one of them involved this idea that there were little people inside of cells, and maybe there were little people inside of sperm, or maybe it was little people inside of eggs, and people went back and forth as to which one was right. 
And what he found was that, in fact, there were these funny little cells that were almost like animals. And so that's why they're called spermatozoa. And one of the things that he discovered was that they show astounding variation, that he looked at one species and then another and another, and that they weren't the same. And these are actually kind of underwhelming sperm. Sperm are, in general, really cool. They're among the most morphologically diverse cell types known. And some get really nuts. And I actually feel really lucky that I'm studying sperm at Oregon State. Um, I can't go through all the cool examples, so I'm only going to share one with you. This is Drosophila bifurca. It's a three-millimeter fly, but it holds the record for the longest sperm. So let's imagine three millimeters. Now let's imagine six centimeters, because that's basically how long its, its sperm cells are. And for those of you who are thinking, like, ah, humans are number one, are, like, for those of us in the room that make sperm, we're not, they're not even as big as the fly here. So really, really tiny stuff. Um, this, sperm, uh, this fly makes sperm cells that are six centimeters long. As a result, they're very large. They have to get packaged in this weird way, like balls of yarn. And in this image, I've got um, a comparison between the sperm cells that a male makes and the egg that a female makes. And one of the things that happens that's very interesting is that because these sperm are costly to make, males can't make a lot of them. Because males can't make a lot of them, females end up having to mate with more males in order to get enough sperm, which then means males have and face more intense competition, which means they then have to do something to stand out. And that's why I think this stuff is fascinating, is because the stakes are high. One of the reasons we think they're so high is because the female reproductive tract in, in these flies is like a maze. It's incredibly complicated, and males are in a position where they have to be the one that wins. And if you don't, you could survive for days, but if you're not fertilizing eggs, you're done, right? And so that's why I think this is so fascinating. Um, research on this topic has now reframed this issue, and we found that this can actually be an ornament involved in sexual selection, in much the same way that we could say these men are peacocking it. I mean, really, that, that we're talking about novelty, and that novelty and evolution is what we really care about. We want to know where does this stuff come from. And we think it comes from the fact that these traits are really hard to produce, but they stand out. So it's very interesting that there are these conflicts. And that's the stuff I'm studying. It's the stuff I really like. And none of it would be possible, really, if it weren't for our, our friend Lewin Hook. So I, I feel a special connection to him. Um, but I didn't start here at Oregon State thinking I'd be studying beetle sperm. I came in thinking, yeah, I'm a beetle nerd, and I'm going to study beetles. And here's the beetle I thought I would study. It's actually called an arboreal ground beetle, because they've left the ground and gone into the trees. There's about 4,000 of them worldwide, and I thought, I'll be a scientist who can see one of those things and go, ah, yes, Libia viridis. Wonderful. You know, and that have this, like, massive knowledge. And uh, one of the things that happened uh, in grad school, in the start of grad school, was the feeling that I was very lost, that I was just all alone out there, that here was, you know, I had to do a project, and I told myself how it was going to look, but I really didn't know. When I met with my professor, we'd have sort of vague conversations about what our plans might be, and I really started talking 
about ground beetles in the sense that maybe I could go after this interesting group of ground beetles that are very colorful and they're involved in mimicry complexes and all this wonderful stuff that was always sort of like that, sort of very, very vague. So it made it hard to talk about, especially in, in meetings with other grad students when you have to do your little elevator pitch. It made it really hard for me to say like what it was I was doing because I didn't really know what I was doing. So what you said, Steph, really connected with me because that's, that's how I felt for a big chunk of my PhD. And I remember a moment came when I could actually go out into the world and, and study beetles and was going to focus on the natural history of these things. And this connects with me because this is the reason why I got into science, was to connect with the natural world, and in particular with all the variation that's out there, which I think is just stunning and amazing. And an opportunity came up to go to southern Mexico and collect those colorful beetles that I showed. And the plan was to go and look for them and to document their natural history. In particular, they do this very interesting thing where the baby version of that colorful beetle I showed looks normal. That is to say, it looks really weird. It has normal-looking legs and like these big, powerful jaws. It goes, it seeks out a host, and when it finds one, it latches onto it, and it then loses its leg and looks like a leech almost. Even weirder is the adult looks like the beetle that it parasitizes. So I was very interested in that relationship, and I was going to go and do that. And I'm in Mexico, I'm running around at night, I'm looking for bugs, I'm doing my thing, and I'm not finding these things. And I remember being uh, in the mess hall, and my friend Andrew passes me a vial, and in it is a bug with its legs up, kind of kicking, straggling for life. And it was that beetle. It was the one I was looking for, and it was actually the only one I saw that entire trip. And so I just felt downtrodden. Like, oh my God, now i got to go back. i got to talk to my boss, and I have nothing to say. What have I produced? Um, and that really was scary for me, was the feeling that I'm, I'm, I've been trapped by my project instead of feeling like I could just, that I could do what I want, that I had agency. Um, on the side, I started dissecting beetles while I was in the field in Mexico. And when I came back to Oregon, I started looking at them. And I saw some really interesting stuff. So this is an advancing. So I'm going to try see if this works. Oh, no. There we go. So I saw some really interesting stuff. So one of the things that ground beetles do is they join their sperm together. So here are a whole bunch of sperm joining, joined to this non-living cartilaginous rod. And the reason why this is interesting is because basically every bit of space that a male gives up for this thing is space that he could be using for sperm. And so you'd figure it'd never get as big, it'd never get as bigger than it needs to be, basically. If you need an analogy here, I often will say that it's kind of like rowers in a rowboat. And basically, evolution has changed every part of the story here that it's played around with the boat, bigger, smaller, corkscrew-shaped, flattened, ribbon-shaped. It's played with the rowers. You can make them bigger, smaller, uh, uh, play with the arrangement of them. And I was getting really into this. But I still had to report back from that Mexico trip. And I remember being in the lab, and my boss is doing a DNA extraction. And he asked me how it went. 
in particular, did I get any natural history data? And I said, no, not really. And he did this. <sighs> so we're back to square one. And in that moment, that hurt so much. That hurt so much because, like, I felt like I was really trying. I, and and the, the amount of expertise you, you need to be able to, like, be plopped out there in the wild and seek out a, an organism and be able to study it when there's all this complexity that we don't know about is really daunting. And I wish in the moment I could have explained that like I can now, but I didn't. But thankfully, I thought the stuff that was going on with sperm was pretty cool. And so I met with David, and I showed him my photos. I was like, hey, here's the stuff I'm seeing. And I kind of got to have this moment where I got to communicate with him that it was like I was entering into a foreign planet and that I was seeing all these patterns that had only been studied a tiny little bit. And from that discovery, I was starting to think more about, well, why are these structures so diverse? Why don't we see certain patterns in evolution? And David did something that I'm so grateful for, which is he didn't tell me no. He said, what if this were the focus of your PhD? And that was huge. So I, I think if there's, there's anything that OSU has given me, it's that it's given me lots of freedom. I took a long time to find it, and it did mean I had to struggle because I felt very alone. Uh, but I, I now know I'm not. And in fact, I, I actually feel like I've, I've got a spark and that I've got something that I now can share with you all and, and that's all that I want to encourage you all to discover. That one of the things that makes grad school so difficult is because no one's ever done the thing you're doing before. If they did, it'd already be done. And you're at the boundary of the unknown and known and you're just charging in there. And it helps if you have a light. I also would say, it helps if you bring a friend. <laughs> All right? Thank you. And we're ready for the next round of speakers. Our first speaker is AJ Fillo from Mechanical Engineering, where he's a PhD candidate. He's advised by Kyle, Dr. Kyle Niemeyer. Please help me in welcoming AJ to the stage. When I was younger, I used to work as a professional actor and magician, mostly magician. And through doing a lot of kids' shows, birthday parties, magic shows. I learned a lot about the importance of professional presentation and communication skills. So pretty much from day one of my graduate career, I started doing science shows for kids and schools and pretty much anybody that would listen. And I would start every single science show the exact same way. Hi, I'm AJ Fillow, and I'm a rocket scientist. Specifically, I'm a combustion engineer, and today I'm going to talk to you about the combustion that happens inside jet engines and rockets. 
and the shows were a huge success. Kids loved them, parents loved them, teachers loved them, but I wanted to do more. So I did something about that. I filled out an application, I sent it in to Oregon State University, and I asked, can I start a student group to teach kids about science and engineering? And they said yes. Uh, the group is called Project X, and as a club, we visit local schools, K through 12 classrooms, and we teach about science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics with these cool hands-on demonstrations. And while I was at one of those demonstrations, a teacher pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, y'all should consider doing these demos at the Corvallis Makers Fair. I thought, hmm, Corvallis Makers Fair, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, and so I looked it up, and I did something. I sent an email to the organizers of the Co, and I asked, uh, I run a student club here on campus teaching kids about science and engineering. Could we have a booth to do some science demos? And they said, yes, we got a booth. So I gathered up all my Project X minions, and we went, and we started doing science demos, and it was great. And to add some flair throughout the day, I did my personal science show, uh, and I would always, after my introduction, I would always do the same magic trick at the start of every show. I would look out at my audience, and I would put my hand in front of me with my fingers pointed out, and I would say, please take your hand and put it in front of you like this. And they would. And they would. <laughs> and then looking at this crowd of confused people, I would say, now take your other hand, cross it over the top, interlace your fingers, holding your hands together with your thumbs pointed down. And they would. And, well, most of them. There would always be like one joker or, or another. No, no, sir, make sure your thumbs are pointed down. Yeah, there we go. And once everybody was on the same page, I'd put my hands back together, and I would look at the audience, and I would say very simply, all I want you to do is take your hands and turn them over. And to their shock and amazement, magically, I was the only one that could do it. And it wasn't science, it was magic, but that wasn't the point. It got people excited, it got people thinking. They wanted to solve a problem, and that's what I wanted. I wanted them problem-solving for the science demos I was about to do. And while I was doing that, flipping my hands over, I looked out into the audience and I saw in the back this guy standing there, long hair, beard, his left arm crossed over his chest, his hand tucked up under his arm, right hand on his chin. He looked at me as I flipped over my hands, and he went, huh, and he wandered away. And I was, nah, no big, no big deal. People wander away all the time. You do a public, show, public science show, people come, people go, that's the name of the game. So I kept on with my show. The next thing I would do is I would explain how the same turbulence that causes a plane to rock as you fly through rough air actually affects everything in the world around us, from things as big as an ocean to things as small as a grain of sand. And with clever engineering uh, and uh, careful design, and a moment for, oh, there we go, we could actually craft and design uh, this turbulence to do exactly what we wanted to, like make beautiful smoke rings. And as I'd say that, I'd puff the side of my smoke ring generator and shoot a beautiful meandering smoke ring over the heads of my audience. And as I did that, I looked back over the audience and I saw in the background that guy again. Long hair, beard, arm over his chest, hand on his chin. And he looked, watched that smoke ring sail slowly over the crowd. He looked back at me and he went, Huh. And he wandered away. 
So I didn't think anything of it. Went back to my show. It's what I was here for anyway. And I'd always wrap up with this big finale. I would say that same turbulence that affects planes and we can make smoke rings with, if we combine that with the fire, the flames that are inside an engine for a jet or a rocket, we can actually get them to do really cool things. As I would say that, I would strike a match and drop it and miss. And I would strike a match. And I would take a lighter. <laughs> and I would light an alcohol stove that I had prepared earlier. And I would explain that with that clever design, we could actually use the turbulence to shape the physical structure of a flame and get it to do exactly what we wanted. And I would give it a spin, and a beautiful fire tornado would rise up. And the crowd would go, ooh, ah. And as I did that, gave my burner a spin, took my bow, I looked over the audience, and there was that guy again, standing in the back. Shoulder-length hair, beard, arm over his chest, hand on his chin. And he looked at me, looked at the fire tornado, looked at the crowd, and went, huh. And he wandered up to me. He stuck out his hand to shake mine, and he said, hi, I'm Andrew. I work with the library. I like what you do. Maybe we could work together. Gave me his card, and he wandered away. So I looked at his card, looked up Andrew. Turns out he was the deputy director of the Corvallis-Benton County Public Library. So I did something. I set up a meeting, and at that meeting, I asked, can you buy me 650 pounds of cornstarch to make a giant pool of non-Newtonian fluid to help kids feel like they're walking on water? And he looked at me, long hair, beard, arm over his chest, hand on his chin, like he did, and he went, huh. Yeah. And so we bought 650 pounds of cornstarch from Winco, which is a thing you can do. And uh, we made a giant pool of oobleck, a non-Newtonian fluid made out of cornstarch and water. And we had this big, epic demonstration in the middle of the Oregon State University quad at the Beaver Community Fair. It was a huge success. We had students running on it. People brought their families. Kids were there. Professors came and just nerded out over the science. It was awesome. And we used that as an opportunity to get people to sign up for Project X and to get people, students at Oregon State, to sign up for public library cards. And on that day, they gave away more library cards than they had at any other Oregon State event. And so, on that success, Andrew came up to me afterwards, as he did, long hair, beard, arm on his chest, hand on his chin. He said, what else you got? And so I looked at him, and I asked, can we start a YouTube channel to teach kids about the demos we do all over the internet? And he went, huh, yeah. So we got a startup grant from the Corvallis-Benton County, Corvallis County Friends of the Library Foundation. And we did four episodes and launched LibLab, the Library Laboratory, a YouTube channel focused on teaching kids about science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics using hands-on demonstrations. You can find it at youtube.com slash liblabscience. It's my shameless plug for the night. And in the first episode, we talked about combustion, and we talked about my research and did a tour of the, the Oregon State University Combustion Lab. The second episode was about snake robots, these soft robots that we're designing here at Oregon State University that are so robust you can smash them with a hammer and they'll bounce back and keep going. 
The third episode was about the great American eclipse and taught kids how to watch it safely so they could enjoy that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And we were having so much fun, having such great success, that Andrew came up to me after the third episode had aired, and he, he said, as he did, arm over his chest, hand on his chin, what else you got? So I looked at him, and I said, something really big. And I did something. I picked up my phone, and I called the Oregon State University marching band, and I said, can, uh, can I borrow your drumline for a night to teach kids about science and engineering? Then I picked up my phone again, and I called the Oregon State University Athletics Department. I said, hey, can I borrow a research stadium for a night? See, I wanted to take the science of my smoke ring shooter and take it to the biggest possible, most exciting extreme that I could. And my imagination took me to this epic, stomp-style musical extravaganza starring the Oregon State University marching band drumline on the 50-yard line of Research Stadium in the middle of the night, shooting or playing on these giant smoke ring drums. Well, we got one out. <laughs> and to my shock and amazement, they said yes, and this aired on the front page of the Corvallis Gazette Times a couple weeks later. Library science guy with an epic photo of the Oregon State University drumline on the 50-yard line of Research Stadium drumming on the Vortex drums that I had built. Since then, I called up the Oregon Coast Aquarium and I asked, could I borrow an aquarium tank for a day to teach kids about science? Uh, and they said yes, and for good measure, they gave me a scientific diving team and an underwater camera crew to make sure we could really film it the best possible. Then I called up the Corvallis Fire Department and I said, hey, got that ladder truck. Mind if I borrow that for a day to teach kids about science and engineering? And they said, yeah. And in fact, we'll give you a full fire crew and full access to our training facility here in Corvallis. Most recently, I called up the Microproducts Breakthrough, in Breakthrough Institute here at Oregon State University, and I asked, hey, could I use your multi-million dollar experimental 3D printer to make a prototype turbulent flame burner to teach kids about combustion and manufacturing? Uh, and they said yes. And so I've learned a lot about science, combustion, turbulence, rocket science, while I've been here at Oregon State University. But the biggest thing that I've learned is how important it is to just ask. You never know what you're going to get. And the reality is, it never hurts to ask. If you ask a question in class, you might have a better understanding of your course material. If you ask your neighbor how they're doing, you might make a new friend. Imagine how great the world would be if we all just asked a little bit more. Not asked for things, but asked so we could learn more. So, let me leave you with this. Go ask somebody something today, and if you have an idea for a great science demonstration or want to teach kids about science and engineering, give me a call. I'll ask around for you. Thank you. Thank you, AJ, for the talk and the pyrotechnics. That's a first for Gradex. <laughs> so our next speaker is Matthew Ramirez, a 
PhD candidate in fisheries science, and he is advised by Dr. Selena Heppel. And here is Matt. Please help me welcome Matt. Had they told me I was going to have to follow a fire demonstration, I might have thought twice about doing this talk. But it's a good thing that I have a ton of pictures of sea turtles. Everyone, I'm sure everyone's uh, favorite sea creature. So by a show of hands, who envisions my research looks something like this? OK, a few. Well, you are all wrong. Uh, it turns out, um, well, we're going to go back, actually. We're already messed up. <laughs> um, you're all wrong, because, and in reality, you would never find me scuba diving because I'm the ma rare marine ecologist that ha has, does not like the water. Um, I, in fact, have a fear of drowning and both an irrational fear of sharks. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> and so most marine scientists have truly inspirational stories about falling in love with the ocean or marine creatures as children. I got into marine science, marine science a little later in life. Um, in fact, my earliest memory of the water involves a seven-year-old Matt storming out of swim lessons because he didn't want to go to the deep end in the pool. So, how does this somebody who grew up hating the water turn into a marine scientist? Well, it turns out you can get around that problem by studying dead things. And so that's what I do. I study the bones of sea turtles that have died naturally and washed up on our beaches. More specifically, I study their humerus bone, which is the bone that connects your elbow to your shoulder. And it turns out that sea turtle bones are the key to unlocking mysteries that have perplexed the sea turtle world for decades. And that's because they contain these annual growth rings, similar to, similar to tree rings, that we can measure and sample to study how they grow, where they live, what they eat, and how they're impacted by human activities such as oil spills during the 99% of their life when they're not on the nesting beaches. But before we get into my research, let's talk about how a kid who grew up hating the water turns into a marine scientist. Like anybody who studies wildlife, I've always loved animals. But for a long time, I thought that meant I should become a veterinarian. I mean, I once tried to save a baby mouse that I found in my driveway, so if that's not a sign, I don't know what is. And so when I went to college uh, at Auburn University in Alabama, I that's what I first pursued, tried to become a vet. But it wasn't in until between my sophomore and junior years of college, when I actually started working at a vet's office, that I realized just how much time you spend with both animals and people that, more often than not, want nothing to do with you. And so I quickly decided that that was not the career path for me. And so, needless to say, at this point I was a bit lost because I had just nixed the career path that I thought I was on since I was essentially born. Um, but lucky for me, I had become involved with undergraduate research, specifically in biological sciences, as a freshman. And I had a pretty adamant research advisor that pushed me to carry out my own research project to really test out if I could cut it as a researcher. And so the next summer, I followed one of her grad students to the Canadian Rocky Mountains to study ground squirrels. I'm sure everyone's favorite small mammal. Uh, long story short, um, I spent that summer collecting their poop to study how they digest their food. Now, if you can imagine, it's difficult to study cats and dogs in a vet setting. Uh, squirrels also do not want you to touch them. Um, but despite touching lots of poop and uh, <laughs> uh, working it, with these very uncooperative animals for the summer, by the end of that summer, I was hooked on biological research. And so by about that time, I was about to graduate from college, 
And on a whim, I applied to work on a sea turtle nesting beach um, because I decided I wanted to gain some experience that had more clear conservation outcomes. Little did I know that at that time, that summer would become my origin story as a marine scientist because that's when I first became captivated by sea turtles. There's something truly majestic about watching these ancient creatures emerge from the ocean, lay a nest, and disappear back into the water. I mean, they're pretty cool. That look, is that not a dinosaur? <laughs> and the more I learned about their life history, the more fascinated I became. I learned that there are only seven species of sea turtle alive today, and that despite roaming our oceans for tens of millions of years, all are at risk, are at risk of extinction due to human activities. I also learned that despite decades of intense conservation and management, understanding of their life history was actually pretty poor, other than when they're on the nesting beach. We studied that a lot. And so by the end of that summer, I had decided I want to keep working with sea turtles. They're pretty cool. Um, there's a lot of areas that we can do a lot more research. And so that's how I kind of started coming to OSU. Despite not having many sea turtles, you actually can find that turtle off of Oregon coast, um, very far away. Uh, OSU is actually home to one of the leading experts in sea turtle population ecology, Selena Hafel. And I somehow convinced her to let me join her lab. And so I came to OSU and really got started working on sea turtle bones somewhat on a whim. Uh, we spent a long time talking about what I might be able to do, might, what I might do for my research, uh, but some of her collaborators had these loggerhead turtle bones that they wanted to analyze and to use to study when uh, these turtles are migrating from offshore to nature habitats. So these are turtles that uh, are can, found in, can be found in the Atlantic Ocean. And so this became my master's research. And so it turns out that there are there are ra the ratios of certain elements differ between offshore and nearshore habitats, and that these really unique signatures are deposited in their bones. And if we sample their growth rings individually, we can build a real, really unique timeline of their habitat use that perfectly aligns with the information we get, the timeline we can get from, of age and growth from, also from their bones. And so by combining these multiple data sets, uh, we were basically able to determine what specific ages and sizes these turtles were migrating from offshore to nearshore habitats. And so understanding when and where endangered species occur is very important for their conservation and management. And so the research for my PhD has kind of gone along similar lines, but I switched to my focus to working on the Kemp's Ridley sea turtle. This species has the dubious distinction of being the most critically endangered species of sea turtle in the world, having nearly gone extinct in the 1980s. Uh, more specifically, my research is focused on studying how diet, habitat use, and the Deepwater Horizon oil spill may have impacted their growth rates. So as a general rule in sea turtles, um, growth is highly variable. You could have one turtle growing four times faster than the other, uh, and then both be the same exact age. We know the environment largely drives this, but what specifically is not clear. And so my research has helped trying to fill some of those knowledge gaps. And understanding what causes some turtles to grow slower than others is important because anything that interrupts their growth rates can impact how long it takes them to reach maturity and can reduce their survival. And in species that take decades to mature, um, that is a bad thing, <laughs> necessarily. And so those two things combined can really impact the recovery of an endangered species. But one does not just simply go out and find lots of dead turtle bones to work for, on ones for, for one's dissertation. It truly takes a village. I have uh, the privilege of working with a really unique data set that's comprised of over 1,000 chemistry humerus bones that have been collected over the past 20 years. And they were collected by uh, the hundreds of state, federal, and private partners that collectively make, the sea, make up the Sea Turtle Stranding and Salvage Network. Now, this network includes all beaches that run from Maine to Texas, 
And if you've ever seen a sea turtle in a rehab center or an aquarium, it's very likely it was first found by somebody in this network. And occasionally, when a turtle is dead, they will collect a humerus bone from them. And so, if you haven't really got this yet, what's really cool about the turtle bones is that they have a very long record of growth history. So from a single bone, I can get up to 12 growth rate, esti growth rate estimates for a single individual. And this compares, this is very much in contrast to the regular way we study sea turtle growth, which requires you going out, finding a turtle, measuring and tagging it, releasing it, and then hoping to one day find it again, just to get one growth rate estimate. So there's a lot of value in these bones. And so the, the story of how my project is even possible is very much similar to the story of sea turtle conservation in general. When working with such long-lived, highly migratory species, major advances in knowledge and conservation success only come from sustained collaborative efforts. And the story of the Kems Ridley sea turtle was once the poster child of what could be achieved when an international team of scientists and governments come together to try to save an endangered species. The species is unique because it only nests in a handful of beaches in Mexico and South Texas, so in the Gulf of Mexico. We also have a video of a nesting event in 1947 uh, that we've been able to use to estimate that there were once 50,000 turtles nesting annually on these beaches. The problem is that these same life he history features that make this species unique also make them easy to overexploit. In the 50s and 60s, um, almost every single egg and nest was being collected for consumption, and many, many turtles were dying as bycatch in fisheries. The problem was so bad that by the 80s, the number of turtles nesting annually on this beach dropped to 400 representing a 99% decline in the number of turtles nesting on the, this beach in only four decades. So clearly something needed to be done, otherwise this species on, was on track to be lost forever before the turn of the century. And so a binational recovery effort was initiated jointly between Mexico and the United States, beginning in the 60s and 70s, that implemented um, nest protection and protections for nesting females, uh, increased in water survival through changes in fishing practices, and led to the implementation of a reintroduction program um, that created a new nesting colony in South Texas that still exists today, by the way, which is pretty cool. Um, and what's great is that these efforts really were working. By the, 90, by the 90s, the population began to grow exponentially, such that uh, by 2009, there were 10,000 nesting females, a quarter of the size of the historic population size. This population was growing so fast that it was on track to be removed completely from the Endangered Species Act by the mid-2020s. That is the crown jewel of any conservation effort. You want to be off that act. The problem is, in 2010, the number of nesting tur turtles began to fluctuate widely, bringing uncertainty to the long-term recovery of the species. And while there are multiple competing hypotheses as to what's going on, it's likely no coincidence that this is the same year as the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which we know is generally bad for sea turtles. And so the problem is it's been very difficult for us to specifically tie any of these nesting changes to the Deepwater Horizon oil spill specifically. And my, my research um, is not necessarily directly related to those changes in nesting numbers, but should shed light on how that oil spill may have impacted their growth rates. What's clear is that the Kemsworthy really story is still being written. And while new threats are emerging just as we're putting old threats to bed, I remain optimistic about this species' future. These species have been roaming our oceans for tens of billions of years, and so sea turtles are, we know that sea turtles are nothing but resilient. And we know that conservation measures, when implemented properly, do work. And so if there's one thing I've learned from studying sea turtles and their bones, 
is that we can push the, push the bounds of knowledge and achieve the pre previously unattainable if only we work together. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Our next speaker is Elizabeth Kawesa from the Department of Chemistry, where she is advised by Dr. Sandra Lozgen. Please help me welcome Elizabeth to the stage. Thank you. Hi, good evening. How's everybody doing? So, so? Well, tonight I'm gonna talk about exploring the unknown. I'm sure that all of us uh, can agree that our lives can be crazy, crazy sometimes, maybe most of the time. And uh, we find ourselves exploring the good things that happen, the triumphs, the celebrations, and we find ourselves uh, looking forward to the next big thing. But we also get to process the hardships of life, loss of a loved one, uh, rejection, the hardships of graduate school. And I believe underneath all of that, we get to truly explore who we are, uh, why we're here, and what our true purpose in life is. As a little girl, I wanted to fix anything and everything. Um, my friend uh, used to call me Miss Busy Bee, and I think that might be true uh, now. And uh, I just wanted to fix the world around me. I was born and raised in Uganda, and we grew, I grew up at this village, Waringa village, where my parents moved to serve as ministers and missionaries, and the conditions at the village were not ideal. And so I found myself trying to imagine all these career paths I would pursue in order to create this perfect world around me. I wanted to be an engineer so that I could uh, fix the roads, so we could have better housing. I definitely wanted to be a plumber so that we could improve the water system, have indoor plumbing. I hated going to the well or going to the lake for water, so I figured, you know, I could be a plumber to uh, implement that. In my mind, I thought of myself as a nurse. We had this one first aid kit that everybody at the village sometimes used, and I would always help my friends bandage them up, and I figured I would be an awesome nurse. I definitely wanted to be a midwife, but that was out of curiosity. I just wanted to know how did that baby get in there? Why is it in there for that entire time? And how is that baby going to come out? So that was out of curiosity. Uh, the village did not have any health center. Um, and so, so many people either died because of high fevers, of malaria, uh, snake bites, or women died in childbirth. A few days before my ninth birthday, my sister and my grandmother both died on the same day. And these are two unrelated cases. And at that moment, I wanted to be a doctor. I just wanted to fix it. I always imagined, uh, if I was a doctor, what I would have done differently and how I could have changed the situation that my family was facing. And so I also thought about the doctors who were treating them, if they had done the best they could, if there were better uh, medical resources or medication. And so I just, I just wanted to be a doctor uh, that point in time. In order to fulfill our purpose, I think education plays a very pivotal role in that. And unfortunately, at the village, we did not have any uh, schools whatsoever. Uh, my mother was very determined, and she wanted us to obtain an education, at least learn how to read and write. Uh, that's a very good start. Um, and so we didn't have any schools. But for me, that journey started under a tree with the dirt as my book and a stick as my pencil. And so that's where the journey began. And I explored through primary school and secondary school. And through all of that, I uh, navigated the limitations of the Ugandan education where 
um, the ministry department get, got to di dictate what major you studied, what school you went to, or even the funding for that matter. So I found myself my first year of college as a communications major. Up to this point, I'm not really sure what I would have done with communications. I think I would have gone to law school and maybe a lawyer and be an advocate um, for social injustices or human rights for that matter. Uh, shortly after my first year of college, I moved to the United States. So I found myself now exploring uh, a new place that I now call home. And so uh, a lot of things were very different. Transition is always hard. And I navigated the food. Food was a little different. Um, so many ice cream flavors. <laughs> like, so many. Uh, that was very, very, very interesting. Different holidays like Thanksgiving, um, um, July 4th, uh, 4th of July, I guess that's how you say it. Um, and I also navigated the weather, so I flew in during a snowstorm, and the snow was beautiful, but it was so cold, very, very, very cold, and I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't prepared for snow whatsoever. Uh, then the weather got better. I enjoyed the four seasons because I only grew up with the dry season or the rainy season, and then the weather got beautiful. Then you have spring and summer, and then someone invited me to go camping, and I was like, I grew up in the woods all my life, so let's hang out at the mall, let's go to Monroe, like camping, like really? <laughs> um, so I think part of exploration is you get to determine what you like and what you do not like, so camping is a no-no for me. Um, <laughs> and so I also navigated the education system, I navigated being an international student, which could be very hard. Um, but very quickly, I discovered the opportunity and the freedom that I had to pursue uh, a career path that I, uh, that I really wanted. And so I took a chemistry class, I switched from a communications major to biochemistry. And so I picked a major that would help me make a difference in people's lives and uh, help people who have limited access to healthcare. Uh, during my undergraduate years, I was exposed to research that was very new, and um, I learned how to do research. My, one of my very pivotal uh, internships was at Johns Hopkins, where I worked alongside uh, doctors and clinical scientists and just watched them how they would research for different uh, drugs and medications or treatment protocols to, to treat patients in care. And so I was inspired by that, and then I applied to graduate school, and I started here at Oregon State in 2015, uh, where I work uh, in the Department of Chemistry with Dr. Sandra Losgan. And in our lab, we explore small molecules and compounds that we obtain from the soil, and uh, we screen these as potential um, medications, antibi antibiotics anti-cancer drugs or uh, antiviral drugs. And so our work is inspired by so many scientists over the years that have discovered so many medications from mundane places like the soil uh, or microbes or plants. A key example is Sarah Alexander Fleming, who discovered penicillin. I'm sure some of us in here have taken penicillin. Um, discovered penicillin from fungi. And so we see that all from these natural sources, we can uh, obtain very significant discoveries. My doctoral work has uh, been on this compound called mensacarsine. So mensacarsine was obtained from the soil, and the soil was from actually Gottingen, Germany. And uh, mensacarsine is very unique in that it only kills melanoma cells. Uh, it does not kill any other cancer type. We've tested it on. And we've also discovered that it kills these cancer cells by cutting off the cell's energy, disrupting it, and therefore causing um, cell death, which is very, 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 very unique. 
uh, this research wouldn't be possible without collaborations. I've been honored to collaborate with amazing researchers from Harvard uh, Medical School, Virginia Tech, or the Hansman Cancer Institute, and also at OHSU here in Portland, where they're currently running preclinical trials. So it's, it's been a blessing to, to uh, work with amazing researchers. You can imagine uh, over 25 years ago when I started school, um, in the dirt. <laughs> I don't know what I enjoyed most, playing in the dirt or learning in the dirt, uh, maybe a little bit of both. But imagine my surprise when I discovered that 50% of the medications that, were ta that are taken today are uh, from natural sources or are inspired by nature. We have anti-cancer drugs like doxorubicin, paclitaxel, vincristin that are used in the clinic today and uh, they're obtained from nature. Some of the antibiotics that some of us have taken here, erythromycin, penicillin, or cholesterol medication, uh, are all from natural sources. And so the exploration continues with, um, with mensacarsin, where we, uh, I hope to find out how mensacarsin actually works, and hopefully we're able to develop mensacarsin into a melanoma drug. I, I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe we could see that in our lifetime. But uh, in case we do not, I'm confident that all the experiments and the protocols and the knowledge that we have today will contribute to more studies and eventually we'll have a cure um, for cancer. And so all the research that I have been able uh, to do here at Oregon State has uh, prepared me and trained me to train other scientists and hopefully develop research projects on underexplored tropical diseases in sub-Saharan Africa that coexist with uh, cancer and HIV for that matter. Um, very quickly, I discovered that Miss Busy Bee cannot do everything. <laughs> and uh, I could narrow into just one thing, and currently it's uh, this wonderful project and cancer research. And uh, I believe all of us here have a purpose in life that we're not here by accident, and I'd like to challenge all of us to not settle for what we're doing right now or who we are, but that we would strive and run and chase that one thing that scares us, because sometimes uh, that very terrifying thing is our destiny. So let us set those goals, let us walk those steps, and uh, let's walk it with perseverance and hope. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. And thank you all for coming to GradX. Let's get our speakers back up here. They did such a phenomenal job. A lot of work went into preparing their talks over the last four months. <laughs> all right, and also I would like to thank my fellow Inspiration Dissemination hosts who helped to help these folks prepare their talks. If you guys could come up to the stage, please. We've got Adrian Gallo, Heather Forsyth, Lori Lutz, Lillian Padgett Cobb, Daniel Watkins, Scott Classic, Maggie Exton, myself, also Marcus Weinman, who is taking a midterm exam right now. And then finally, I want to thank some folks from the graduate school who made this event go off flawlessly. Uh, Karen Hansen, Todd Harwell, please come up. Matthew Tradewell <laughs> and Deb Weitzman is in the back. And also John McQueen for all of the marketing. All right, and thank you all so much for coming to GradX.